your Bible with you this morning. Let's go over to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We have been talking about the righteousness of God, but today we're going to approach it from a little different angle, a little different standpoint, we're going to talk about the righteousness of God, but we are also going to come at it from the standpoint of spiritual warfare. So, stay open, listen to what the Lord has to say. I think you're going to find some things very interesting. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, very familiar passage of Scripture on spiritual warfare. Let's begin with verse 3. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down imaginations, or as the Greek text says, reasonings. Casting down reasonings in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now go back to verse 3, if you will. He said, For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war after the flesh. You please, please you, need to, you need to take note of that verse. You need to realize that our warfare is not based on who we are in the natural. It is not based on our identification in this physical, natural world. The devil does not care who you are in the natural. That's not what counts. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He said, for though we walk in the flesh, we live in this natural, physical, flesh world, but our warfare is not rooted in that. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. The weapons of our warfare are not weak. They're not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Our weapons are not weak, and our weapons are not natural. Our weapons are not carnal, and they're not based on who we are in the natural. Verse 4 once again. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down imaginations, or as I said to you earlier, casting down reasonings, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. How many of you know Satan will attack? He will, won't he? The enemy will come against you. 
And when He comes against you, the fruit of that attack many times can be seen in the natural realm. A lot of times when the enemy hits, he'll come against our finances. A lot of times when the enemy hits, he'll come against us with sickness and disease. A lot of times when the enemy comes against us, it'll show up in persecution. People talking ugly about you, saying things about you behind your back, the rumor mill and all of that kind of thing. Sometimes the enemy will show up and in negative circumstances and negative situations. When the enemy attacks, it will show up in this physical, natural world. But the pro- and the problem is that when the, those attacks, when the, the fruit of those attacks show up in the natural, many times Christians spend their time trying to fight the enemy in the natural realm. But our warfare is not in the flesh. Our warfare is not in the natural. And that is exactly what Paul is saying here not to do. And you need to realize that most Christians' idea of spiritual victory is feeling better and being comfortable. Isn't that true? Most people come to church so that they can feel better and find out how to be more comfortable. I want to find out how to get my bills paid. I want to find out how to get my body healed. I want to figure out how to straighten out this mess in my life. I want to feel better and I want to be more comfortable. That's most Christians' idea of spiritual victory. God's idea of spiritual victory is not you feeling better or you being more comfortable. God's idea of spiritual victory is that you become more like Jesus every day. And that the character of Jesus is developed in your life on a steady basis so that you're not the same person today that you were yesterday and you're not going to be the same person tomorrow that you are today but that you are being more and more and more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. That, my friend, is spiritual victory. And when you come to that place where the character of Jesus is being conformed in you or worked in you, then your circumstances and your physical situations and your finances and things of that nature will begin to line up. Verse 4 once again. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Well, where are these strongholds? Verse 5. Casting down imaginations. Casting down reasonings. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. The primary battleground where we face the enemy is not in this physical, natural world. It's not in getting our bodies healed or getting the finances or fixing our circumstances or dealing with people that talk ugly about us. The battleground is in the soul. The battleground is in the mind, the emotions, and the will. And if we can win the warfare in the soul, then we can win the warfare in the other areas. In 3 John 2... John said this, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health. How many of you want to prosper? We all do. How many of you want to be in health? We all do. 
Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospers. If we can win the battle in the mind and the emotions against the enemy, then the rest of our life will begin to line up with the will and the purpose and the plan of God. You've got a lot of Christians that spend a lot of time in prayer and intercession, and they're wanting to spend time pulling down strongholds over the city, and all of that is well and good, but they're not willing to deal with the strongholds in their own minds and in their own emotions. And until you're willing to deal with the strongholds in your own mind and in your own emotions, you won't carry the spiritual authority to pull down the strongholds over a city. And on top of that, let me just say this to you. No individual will pull down a stronghold over a city. In order to pull down a stronghold over a city, it requires the corporate body of Christ. There is individual warfare and there is corporate warfare. And when the body of Christ begins to come into unity and you end up with a group of people that are in unity and in harmony and in love with one another, the Word says one will put a thousand to flight, two will put ten thousand to flight. And when the body of Christ begins to come into divine order, then we'll carry the authority and the power to pull down the strongholds over the city. But until we're willing to deal with what's in the mind and in the emotions, we are wasting our time dealing with the city. Are you listening? In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, this is a very important verse of Scripture where spiritual warfare is concerned. Ephesians 2, 2 says, "...wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air." Who is that? It's the devil, isn't it? He is the prince of the power of the air. And there are a lot of Christians trying to pull him down out of the air, trying to dethrone him over a city or a state or whatever the case may be. But notice what it said. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. What's going on in the heavenlies over a city or a state or a nation is simply a mirror image of what's going on in people's hearts down on the surface. And when people begin to deal with what's in their heart, in their mind, and their emotions, and begin to bring that into divine order, then you will have a change in the spiritual atmosphere of a city, a state, or a nation. Why? Because we're the ones that are in authority here. Are you listening? Verse 5 once again. Casting down imaginations or reasonings and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. With what? Verse 4 says, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Notice it says in verse 4 that we have weapons, plural. We've got all kinds of weapons. But one of the primary weapons that we have is the weapon of righteousness. You're right there in 2 Corinthians 10. Back up to 2 Corinthians 6 for just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 6.
2 Corinthians chapter 6, notice in verse 4, says, but in all things approving ourselves. And actually the Greek text says on approving there, the Greek word is to test with a view to approval. It says, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God. So you want to go in the ministry. Okay. Approving ourselves as the minister of God in much patience, in affliction, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, verse 7, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Notice he says that our armor is an armor of righteousness. Right standing with God. It's important that you realize that understanding our righteousness before God. And I've been talking talking about righteousness for the past two months. I can't go back and review. Get the CDs. I need the money. Understanding our righteousness is absolutely necessary to settle the issue of spiritual identification. Understanding righteousness is absolutely necessary to settle the issue of spiritual identification. Like I said to you earlier, it's not who you are in the natural, but it's who you are in the spirit. It's who you are in Christ Jesus that will win the warfare. And if you don't get anything out of the rest of this message, please hear this. All spiritual warfare comes down to an issue of identification. I want to say that again. All spiritual warfare comes down to an issue of identification. It's a warfare in the mind. It's a warfare in the emotions. It's a warfare in the soul. And it boils down to the issue of identification. And it boils down to answering two questions. Number one, who are you? Satan's challenge against you is always asking the question, Who are you? Do you remember the the seven sons of Sceva? They tried to use the name of Jesus when they didn't have the right to do it against a guy that was demon-possessed. And they tried to use the name of Jesus. And the Spirit and that guy jumped on them, whipped all seven of them. And he said, Jesus, I know Paul, I know. Who are you? Who are you? That's the first question that has to be answered. The second question that has to be answered is, Who does God say you are? Who does God say you are? 
Who are you? Who does God say you are? Every attack of the enemy is a challenge to that question. And if you don't know the answer, Satan will beat you hands down every time. And the only way you're going to be able to answer that question correctly is have an understanding of the righteousness of God. And that's the only way you're going to win. And put on that armor of righteousness on the right hand. And on the left. I had a lady call me. Uh, when, when did you go to Brady? Friday, Saturday, Thursday. I was up here at the church late doing some things. A lady called me. It's a lady we've known for over 20 years. She was part of the church in San Angelo. And... Uh, she and her husband used to come to the church. They'd bring their kids. Of course, their kids were little back then, you know. And she called. I haven't talked to her in over at least a year. But she called, and she was wanting prayer for her son. And she was talking about how her son was just walking in absolute, total Darkness, just. And the, the kid's got a call on his life. He's got an anointing on his life. And he's out there just goofing off and messing up and just totally screwing up. He's, he's going to turn 30 years old this year. Uh, he's an alcoholic. Uh, he decided about, I don't know, several years ago, he decided he was gay. He isn't any more gay than Bob is. <laughs> but the guy's deceived. He's deceived. He's a mess. Well, she shared a little bit with me about what he was dealing with. She said, I want prayer. And I, I and and before I prayed, I said, well, she was talking and I, and I stopped her and I said, Alright, the Lord has told me exactly how to pray. So I began to pray for her and I said, Lord. I'm asking you to restore his identification. Begin to show him who he is. He got wounded in ministry. Begin to show him who he is. Begin to show him his identity. Bring his identification back as a child of God. Bring back the revelation of righteousness that he once carried. And when I began to pray that, she just started laughing over the phone. And I got through praying and she said, Kenneth, I didn't tell you this, but she said, Yesterday, he called me and he said, Mama, I don't even know who I am anymore. A total loss of identification. And when you begin to find out who you are in Christ Jesus then you can begin to take your place and win some spiritual battles. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Let's look at another familiar passage of Scripture.
Ephesians chapter 6. Let's begin reading with verse 10. It says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Well, you're not going to be strong in the Lord as long as you're trying to fight the devil in your own strength and your own ability and who you are in the natural. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Go back to verse 14. In this listing of the armor of God that Paul gives, he said, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness is the second largest piece of armor in this listing. The largest piece of armor is the shield of faith. And the whole, all of the armor works by faith. But the second largest piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. And the breastplate, as you know, is designed to protect the vital organs. It is designed to protect the heart. Uh-oh, come on. I may have to just quote it. All right, I'll just quote it. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. What protects the heart? The righteousness of God. Let me try it again. No? Okay. Give you another scripture. Matthew 6, 21. Proverbs 4, 23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Matthew 6, 21 says, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Your identification is in your heart. Keep your heart with all diligence. How do you keep your heart? How do you protect your spiritual identity? You do it with the righteousness of God. And we're going to look at that and explore it in a little more detail as we go. But I want you to realize that your spiritual identity and your understanding of righteousness is very, very important. Back up here to verse 10 for a moment. <clears throat> verse 10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That word wiles literally in the Greek is strategies against the strategies of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, 
against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Now, Satan has a strategy. One of the things that Satan is very much aware of that you need to be aware of. You cannot separate identity from anointing. You cannot separate identity from anointing. This is something that Satan learned firsthand a long time ago. Most of you know your Bibles well enough to know a little bit about the history of Lucifer. Lucifer was created as the archangel. He was the chief angel of worship in heaven. The word Lucifer itself means light bearer. And of course, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And when you understand that and you look at those two things and you put them together, there are many people that believe that, Je- that Lucifer, before he fell, may have been Jesus' own personal angel. May have been, may not have been. I will say that that, uh, that position has been replaced. You can read that in Revelation 1.1. Jesus gave the revelation of, his self, of himself to his angel who delivered it to John. Anyway. Lucifer was the light bearer. He was the chief angel of worship. And when he tried to overthrow God, when he tried to instigate a rebellion against God, he was defeated and he lost that name. He's not Lucifer anymore. Okay? And when he lost the name, he lost his anointing. Now, I've shared this with you before, that in the English language, we call this this malevolent spirit, this fallen angelic being, we call him Satan, and we use it as a personal title. That's Satan. That's his name. The truth of the matter is, that's not his name. If you go back to the oldest book of the Bible, the oldest book that was written chronologically is the book of Job. And if you go back and you read the first book that was written of that's contained in the Scriptures, this being that was once called Lucifer, in the King James it refers to him as Satan. But in the literal literal Hebrew it refers to him as Hasetan, the Satan. The Satan. And every single place that the, the, the pronoun the is used. The Satan. Chasetan. The word Satan itself literally means adversary. He is the adversary. Here's the point. When he lost the name of Lucifer, he lost his authority. He lost his anointing. He lost his name, and that name has never been replaced. When he lost his identity, he lost his anointing. Now, you can take this home and play with it. 
since he has no identity, that is why he always has to come against you in disguise. A lot of times he'll do it through people. A lot of times he'll do it just in your thought life. But there's still a spirit behind it. He has no identity. He has no anointing. He lost that in the fall. Or his fall. Knowing that. Knowing that you lose your identity. You lose your anointing. Satan uses that as a strategy against the child of God. All satanic challenge, every attack that you face, all satanic challenge is an attempt to separate you from your identity as a child of God. If he can strip you of your identity and you forget who you are, You forget that you're the righteousness of God. You forget you're a child of God. You forget you've been redeemed. You forget you've been born again. You forget that the God of heaven and earth is your father and Jesus is your elder brother. If you allow the devil to to cause you to forget these things, then you disconnect from the anointing. And what happens, the enemy will come against you He will try to separate you from your identity and who you are as a child of God. And if He can do that, then you begin to see yourself in the flesh. You begin to see yourself in the natural. And when you begin to see yourself in the natural, you see all of the flaws and the mistakes and the failures and the screw-ups and all the things that you've done and all the mistakes that you've made. You separate, you become separated from your spiritual identity. And when you're separated from your spiritual identity, you become separated from the anointing of God. Now don't misunderstand me. 1 John 2.27 says you have an anointing that abides within you. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But when you lose your spiritual identity, you disconnect from the Spirit of God that is within you. You disconnect from that anointing that's within you. And when you disconnect from the anointing, you disconnect from strength. And when you disconnect from strength, He's got you. You're nothing but just putty in His hands. And it all boils down to separating you from who you really are. Listen carefully. That is the voice. That is the purpose of condemnation. All condemnation is an attempt to separate you from who you really are. As a believer. Are you listening? And really, that's where the battle lies. Dealing with condemnation. Dealing with Satan's attempt to separate you as a child of God. From your identity. Now, I want to show you some things. And I'll just make this statement to you and then I'm going to show it to you in the scriptures. Jesus 
in his earthly walk, had to fight the spirit of condemnation. That almost seems hard to believe, doesn't it? Well, let me give you some background. Let me show you some things. Let's run some references here for a little bit. Turn with me to Psalm, <clears throat> Psalm 40. Psalm 40. <clears throat> Let everybody look it up. And while you're doing that, I'm going to see if I can make an adjustment on my deal back here. Okay, everybody got Psalm 40? Let me give you a little bit of background. Jesus knew who He was at 12 years of age. Let's see if I can get this going here. No, okay. <clears throat> I spent 30 years in the ministry without PowerPoint. I can survive today. Um... Jesus knew who he was at 12 years of age. He said, I have to be about my father's business. He knew who he was. But here's what a lot of people don't realize. Jesus didn't know who he was because of some super duper revelation. What he would do, <clears throat> he would go and read through the Old Testament. And as he read through the Old Testament, he would come across scriptures that spoke of Messiah. And when he would read those scriptures, he would identify with those scriptures and say, that's who I am. <laughs> that's me. So he got the revelation of who he was from the Old Testament. Let me just give you an example of it here in, in Psalm 40. Psalm 40, beginning with the 6th verse. Every Bible scholar, without exception, Hebrew, Christian, rabbi, doesn't matter, every one of them agree that this is a Messianic passage, what we're about to read. Look in verse 6. Sacrifice and offering thou didst, not thou didst not desire. Mine ears thou hast opened. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Now look at verse 7. Then said I, this is Messiah talking, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me. Now how did Jesus find out who he was? By what was written. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O, God, o my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips, O Lord, thou knowest. I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great 
congregation. The thing I want to bring to your attention is the fact that he found out who he was by revelation from the Old Testament. Now, you go into the ministry of Jesus. Turn with me now to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Jesus received by faith who He was from the Old Testament. Then at 30 years of age, under the direction of the Spirit of God, He goes and is baptized by John in the River Jordan. Let's just begin with verse 13, read down into it. It says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou unto me. And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now. But thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him, or allowed him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, What? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So now he's got confirmation from the Father. Supernatural experience. I am the Son of God. He's seen it from the Scriptures. He's got it by supernatural experience. But then in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says this. It says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when He had fasted forty days and forty nights, He was afterward and hungered. And, hungered. and when the devil came to Him, He said, If you be the Son of God, where was the challenge in His identity? If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now, let me show you. This is an interesting trick of the enemy. If thou be the Son of God, challenge to his identity. If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Well, if I took a couple of rocks and commanded them to be be made bread, and all of a sudden, poof! There's a couple of loaves of bread. That'd look like a miracle, wouldn't it? That'd be a miracle. It would look like a great act of faith. But the premise, if thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. If Jesus was trying to prove His identity, it actually would have been an act of unbelief. You don't have to prove who you are to the devil. You don't have to prove who you are to anybody. All you have to do is believe it, receive it, and act on it. Now look. Verse 3. When the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Very interesting response by Jesus. Jesus has got both. He's got from the Scriptures, 
his identification. He's got a supernatural experience. The Father spoke from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Very interesting to note. When Jesus was, was, was attacked by the enemy, he did not respond with his experience. He didn't say, well now devil, who do you think you are? Weren't you there? My father spoke from heaven and said I, that I'm his beloved son. He didn't respond with experience. He responded with what? It is written. It is written. Why? Because that is the higher authority. All right. But the thing that I want to bring to your attention is the fact that the enemy was challenged or was challenging his identity with what the voice of condemnation now here's something this is this is very important for where we're going please get this jesus had to to fight the spirit of condemnation in his own personal life and he was sinless Jesus had to fight the spirit of condemnation in his own personal life, and he was sinless. Now, as I said to you, he got his identification out of the Old Testament. Let me show you a picture of this out of the Old Testament. Go back to Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. Oh, this is fun. Isaiah 50. Again, this is a messianic passage across the board. It's accepted as such. Isaiah 50 and verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Well, that happened at the cross, didn't it? Or going to the cross. Verse 7. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded or confused. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He is near that justifies me or makes me righteous. The word justify and righteous, as we've already talked about, mean the same thing. He is near that justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that will condemn me? Lo, they all shall wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. This is describing his warfare. He had to fight condemnation. Now let me show you another evidence of that. Turn with me to Isaiah 59. Flip over just a few chapters. Isaiah 59, let's begin with verse 16. Again, this is a Messianic passage. Verse 16, talking about God, says, And He saw that there was no man, 
and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness, it sustained him. Verse 17 is talking about Messiah. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate. Now where have we read that? Out of Ephesians 6. Jesus had to wear the same breastplate of righteousness we do. He had to protect His identity like we do. He had to defend Himself against the spirit of condemnation like we do. For He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon His head. And He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly He will repay. Fury to His adversaries, recompense to His enemies, to the islands He will repay. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Jesus had to fight condemnation and He was sinless. Did you hear that? Here's my point. You don't fight condemnation because you sin. You fight condemnation because you are in a warfare. Did you hear that? You don't fight condemnation because you sin. You fight condemnation because you are in a warfare. I don't care if you're perfect little goody two-shoes. You're going to have to fight condemnation because the enemy is coming against you. And if you're trying to appease the voice of condemnation, you will never be good enough. Because it's not about what you do or what you don't do. It's about the fact that you're in a warfare. Are you listening? It's about righteousness. It's about identification. Yes, ma'am. You're getting it. Absolutely. In fact, let me show this to you in the life of Jesus. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Is this making sense to y'all? Hebrews chapter 12. And Eric, you asked me a couple of weeks ago if I had any teaching on warfare. (laughs) Here it is. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3. For consider Him that endured such contradiction of sinners against Himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. Now listen. You see that word contradiction? I don't know what you've got in your translation. But I want you to take note of something. 
In the King James, it's the word contradiction. The Greek word that's used there is anti-logion. A-N-T-I-L-O-G-I-O-N. Anti-logion. Anti-logion. You know, when you got to log on to something on your computer, you got to type a word, a password, a name. The word logion comes from the Greek word logos, translated word. But this is not logion, this is anti. Now the word anti, you know about antichrist. Anti, that which is against the anointing. The word anti in the Greek means to, to not just be against, it is to be absolutely, totally infuriated against something, vehemently against it. That's the meaning of anti. Another meaning of the word anti is the word substitute. The Antichrist is not just against the Christ, but he's also a substitute for the Christ. But here's the deal. The contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. Now, we've talked about the fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21, when Jesus was hanging on that cross... He absorbed the sin of the whole world. He was made to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He's hanging on that cross. While He's hanging there, there is a battle going on in His mind and in His emotions. And the enemy comes against Him and is hitting His head and hitting His emotions and hitting his mind with everything that has ever been spoken against him. That voice of condemnation. And you can hear the people down below, if you're really the Son of God, come down from the cross. That whole total challenge is hitting his mind Hitting his emotions. Am, am I really who the Word says I am? <clears throat> All of that's hitting his mind, hitting his emotions, and the temptation is twofold. Number one, to try to get him to deny his identity. Step out of faith and deny his identity. If he does that, <clears throat> plan a redemption. Done. Failure. Or, every negative thing hitting his mind and hitting his emotions, everything that has ever been spoken is hitting his head while he's hanging on that cross with the temptation to step over into unforgiveness one time. If he gets over into unforgiveness one time, he disqualifies himself as a redeemer. And the plan of redemption, done. It's finished. But this is so cool. This is so awesome. He's hanging there. All of that stuff is hitting his head. He doesn't, while he's hanging there, I had it on the screen, but Luke 23, 34, he does not say, Oh, Father, I forgive them. If he had said that, 
the implication would have been that there was some unforgiveness there. But he didn't. He said, Father, you forgive them, for they know not what they do. Why? Because there was no unforgiveness there. (laughs) But the whole thing was a challenge to his identity. To what? Strip him of the anointing. Now, when he was at the cro- on the cross, the anointing lifted. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But it was lifted by choice. Okay? He laid it aside by choice. It was not stripped away because of unbelief. Now, let me show you something else. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Let me show you this principle of identification and anointing where his ministry is concerned. Y'all getting anything out of this? Is this helping? Luke chapter 4, verse 16. says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So now we're back to the Old Testament again. Again, this is another Messianic passage. Look at it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's quoting from what we know as Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now listen. He's reading Scripture. (laughs) He's reading the Bible. He's reading Scripture. And he says, now take note how many times he uses the word me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. So twice, sorry Rio, didn't mean to bore you. Twice, or three times rather, he's used the word me. Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. He closed the book, He gave it again to the minister and sat down. The eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on Him. And He began to say unto them, This day is the Scripture fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I'm here, I'm anointed, your choice. Look at their response. Verse 22, And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? They missed who he was. He's telling them, I am the fulfillment of this scripture. I am Messiah. I am anointed. I am the Christ. 
We thought you was Joseph's son. When they missed out on his identity, they missed out on his anointing. You see how that principle works? Who are you? Who does God say you are? Let me give you some things about establishing your identity. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Who are you? Who are you? Now let me give a couple of things to you here. Number one. Resisting condemnation is part of spiritual warfare. You need to settle that. It's not about your sin or your track record or how many gold stars you have or don't have by your name in Sunday school or anything like that. You're in a warfare. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil. And Satan, which deceives the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren. What is Satan's operation? Condemnation. Accusation. The accuser of our brethren is cast down. Now this is going to be for the person that is listening to this message. Yeah, but I've just been so terrible. I've just been so bad. I've just made so many mistakes. Oh, I've been so awful. Everything the devil says is true. No, it's not. Verse 11. Well, verse 10 once again. I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Verse 11. And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they love not their lives unto the death. All of us have a track record. All of us have messed up at some point. But at some point, if we're ever going to have victory in this thing, we have to decide that the blood of Jesus is greater than our failures. They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb. At some point, you have to accept the cross and accept the blood and realize you've not only been forgiven, you have been cleansed from all unrighteousness. Now, either the blood is true or it's not. And if it's not, let's go party because tomorrow we die. Now, it either works or it doesn't. And we have to exercise faith in that blood. And secondly, we have to change what we say. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Resisting, number one, resisting condemnation is part of spiritual warfare. Number two, 
Resisting condemnation is not about circumstances. It's about identity. Quit trying to fight the devil over money. Quit trying to fight the devil over healing. Quit trying to fight the devil over this outer physical thing. What did Jesus say? Matthew 6, 33. It was being on the screen. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And what? All these things be added to you. Let's get to the root of the problem. The issue is righteousness. Number three, resisting condemnation is done with what you say about yourself and about your God. Resisting condemnation is done with what you say about yourself and about your God. It's a battle of words. Let me give you another scripture. Screen doesn't work. Matthew 12, 37. Jesus said, by your words are you justified. And by your words, what? You're condemned. Who are you going to agree with? You going to agree with God or are you going to agree with the accuser of the brethren? Whatever you agree with, you're going to open the door for that spirit to work in your life. I've shared this with you before, but let me bring it up to you again. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. If you want an interesting study, and I was going to put some scriptures on the screen, but that's fruitless. Go through your New Testament. And as you go through your New Testament, especially in the, the letters from the book of Acts onward, there's a few in the book of Acts, but particularly in the letters of Paul and John, go through your New Testament, begin in the book of Acts, and get a concordance and look up every scripture that has these th- one of these three phrases. In Him, in whom, or in Christ Jesus. In Him, in whom, or in Christ Jesus. Whenever you find that phrase, underline it. And begin to make a confession out of that verse of Scripture because that's who you are. You're in Christ. You're in Him. And let me show you one just in particular. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Oh, there's a phrase. We would take note of that verse. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, let me say this to you. I've, I've shared this with you before about this verse. Let me bring it up to you again. I don't care what translation you got. doesn't matter. Nowhere in any Greek manuscript Nowhere, no place, no how, anywhere on the planet. Is there in verse 1, the last part of that verse? It's not there. What happened in the translation of the King James, 
They took verse 4 where it says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. At some point, the end of verse 4 got interpolated into verse 1. But nowhere in any Greek manuscript is it there. What the literal Greek text says in any manuscript, there is now therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, period. Now why is that important? Because anytime you are feeling condemned, it never comes from God. Never, ever, ever. Now, let me explain something to you. There is a difference between conviction and condemnation. The Bible does say that the Spirit will convict, but it doesn't condemn. What's the difference? Well, conviction will point out your sin, but not destroy your character. I mean, for example, if... if Eric gets on Cy back there. He's a little bit older. And she jumps on to him. And she says, now son, now you're a good boy. And what you did was wrong. And you know it's wrong. And you're going to be corrected. But you're a good boy. And we're going to correct this. Because you are a good boy. You're not a bad boy. And you know not to do this. And you shouldn't do that. That's conviction. It didn't destroy his character. But condemnation... Sigh, you stupid moron, you stupid kid. I don't know why I had you anyway. You'll probably end up in the pen before you're 15 anyway. That's destroying character. You see that? It's destroying the image of who that kid is. It's, it's dealing with his identity. And see, conviction, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, conviction of the Holy Spirit does not condemn you. The conviction of the Holy Spirit points to Jesus, and in the light of Jesus, you see the sin, you repent. Condemnation says, you're worthless, you're no good, you'll never do anything, you'll never amount to anything, God probably hates you anyway, and you'd be doing good to make it to heaven. Can you see the difference? Okay. There is now therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. But now, let's uh, <laughs> let's say let's say that the, what I just, the last part of this. Let's say it's in the Greek text. Let's say it's there. Let's say there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. reason I'm bringing this up, I had a pastor here in town defend, well, you know, we do need to walk in the Spirit if we're not going to be condemned. I had a pastor in town tell me that. So let's say it's there. There is now therefore no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Listen, wouldn't listening to the voice of condemnation, wouldn't that be walking in the flesh? So, walking in the Spirit would be what? Don't listen to that voice. Do you follow that? But it's not in the Greek to begin with. The reason I'm bringing this up is I want you to realize that is that your righteousness before God is unconditional if you've made Jesus the Lord of your life. I heard this man, a man say this, it's very important. He said, anybody that has ever done anything for God 
had these two characteristics. Anybody that's ever done anything for God had these two characteristics. Number one, he refused to believe anything negative about God. And number two, he refused to believe anything negative about himself. And you know, if you study the lives of men and women that really ever did anything for God, that characteristic was there. Now, let me look at, I want to look at two scriptures and then we're done. I want to receive communion this morning, but I want to look at two scriptures. We'll look at them back to back. James chapter 4 and Isaiah 54. James chapter 4 and Isaiah 54. James chapter 4 and verse 6. Talking about God says, But He giveth more grace, wherefore He saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. And we've had a lot of stupid ideas about what humility is. Humility is not self-abasement. It's not, oh, I'm just this worthless and no good, and I'm such a bum. That's not humility, that's stupid. What is humility? Humility is going before God and saying, God, you know what? I don't feel very righteous, but your word says I am, so I must be. Lord, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like coming into the throne room of grace. I feel unworthy. I don't feel like I belong here, but you say I do, so I exalt your word above how I feel. That's humility. But notice what it said. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How do you resist the devil? Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. Verse 17. Everybody got it? No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. But every tongue that rises up against you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. (laughs) How do you resist the devil? Well, if he wants to condemn you, condemn him back. Condemn him back. He wants to come against you. Well, he tell you what an idiot you are. Hey, let's talk about idiot. You thought you could overthrow God, moron. You've already been defeated. You're already finished. Jesus said He beheld you as lightning fallen from heaven. You want to try and destroy my future? Let's talk about yours. Yours is going to be real hot, real quick. Let's talk about your future. Let's talk about how stupid you are. Yeah, question his identity. What happened to your identity, moron? You couldn't even keep yours. You don't even have one. I have one. I am a child of the living God. I'm a child of the King. Who are you? Condemn him. Overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. 
and by the word of your testimony. I want to receive communion this morning. And Robert, would you pass out the communion elements, please, sir? And I want to say this to you. Well, I've got to show you one more scripture. <laughs> Philippians chapter 3. <laughs> Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Look at what Paul said after years in the ministry. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You will never accomplish anything in the kingdom looking back. Do you hear what I said? You will never accomplish anything in the kingdom looking back. When this woman called me the other day talking about her son, she said, I just feel so guilty and shared some stuff with me. And I shared with her this principle. Let me share it with you. Listen to me very carefully. When people came to Jesus for ministry, He didn't begin with analysis. Did you hear that? He did not begin with analysis. When they came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I need healing, I need deliverance. They didn't say, you need to give me one? Okay, thank you. Jesus didn't say, well, let's, uh, let's figure out how you got in this mess. Let's analyze this. Let's go back to your childhood and, and find out why you're in the shape you're in. Maybe your, it's because your mama didn't breastfeed you or whatever it may be. Let's go all the way back and find out what's wrong. Jesus never did that. Jesus began with people right where they were in that moment. He didn't try to analyze it. He just concentrated, let's get you delivered. Once they were delivered, He would say, go and sin no more. We'll deal with this when you're out of the mess. We're going to get you out of the mess first. So forgetting those things which are behind. Pressing on toward those things which are before. I want to read to you from 1 John 1, nine, And then we're going to receive the communion. John wrote and he said, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us or to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 said this, said, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Father, we come before you right now in the name of Jesus. We partake of the emblem of your broken body. We partake of the bread. That bread is our sanctification. Your Word says that we're sanctified by the body of Christ.
And Father, we come before You right now and we partake of the bread. And we receive all of the benefits that the bread provides. Healing, deliverance, provision. You give us this day our daily bread. Sanctification. Lord Jesus, it says here that the night You were betrayed, You took bread. So we come before You right now in the name of Jesus. And we choose to forgive everyone that has ever betrayed us, that has ever hurt us, that has ever, ever, ever damaged us in any way. We come before You and we choose to forgive and we let it go in the name of Jesus. And we receive, we receive Your forgiveness as we partake of the bread in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's eat together. Verse 25 says, After the same manner also He took the cup when He had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant or new testament in My blood. This do you as oft as you drink it in remembrance of Me. Lord Jesus, we come before You. As we partake of this emblem of Your blood, we declare that our past dies today. We quit looking back. We quit looking at how things were. We quit listening to the voice of condemnation. We command You to shut up in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth and we partake of the emblem of the blood of Jesus and we receive our cleansing from all sin and we receive our cleansing from all unrighteousness. And from this moment forward, we choose to look forward and not in the past. We thank You and we praise You for Your cleansing. And we move forward in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's drink together. Father, we just thank You that from this moment forward we walk in Your righteousness. And Father, as You people give as they bring their tithes and offerings this morning, I thank You that this seed is being multiplied back into their lives And that, like Paul prayed, they are filled with the fruits of righteousness. All these other things are being added to them. They're filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and the praise of God. Father, we thank You for it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.